Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Most Mouth Podcast with me, Tim Sylvie, and Tom OF1, who's standing in for Harry Benjamin while he's out on commentary duties. This is the place where we meet a figure from the world of motorsport and dive into their lives and careers, often uncovering truths you never knew existed. We've sat down with Formula One drivers, team principals, touring car stars, Le Mans and IndyCar winners, famous broadcasters, content creators and pioneers, all to make sure that you get behind the visor and hear from the world's biggest and most interesting names. If there's anyone with a story to tell, they usually tell it right here. Check us out at motormouth.club, download our app, check out our regular Motormouth kart race where you can race alongside the stars and support our partners at Movember and the Brain Tumor Charity. And don't forget, please subscribe to our show, leave a review, it really makes a difference. Find us on all the major podcast channels. In the meantime, sit back, relax, and enjoy the chat. Hello, Tim Sylvie here, and today we're joined by our third Formula One world champion on the show. He won it in the 1970s, and so, Tom, with that in mind, let's test your 1970s F1 knowledge. Are you ready? <laughs> I have my specialist subject, Tim. <laughs> right. Which driver led the most laps of the 1974 Formula One season? Oh, okay. 1974. I'm gonna say oh, it might have been might be might be a bit late, but I'm gonna say Nicky Lauda. Nicky Lauda? <laughs> no, no, just kidding. It's correct. Oh, see ya. Don't worry me up like that, Tim. It was Nicky Lauda. Um, Emerson Fittipaldi won that year. He didn't get the most race wins. That belonged to Ronnie Peterson, but it was the late great Nicky Lauda that took the most laps. Well done you. All right, question number two. What was so unusual about the Tyrrell P34 of 1976? Was it that it had six wheels? It did have six wheels. 
Absolutely right. Today. Well done you. The idea being that more rubber on the track, the more stable the car. Um, they ended that season third in the constructors, but by 1977, the team moved back to four. Um, well done. Two out of two. Very good. I'm sure that's impressed our guest. Talking of which, shall we introduce him? Let's do it. Tim. So today we're joined by 1979 Formula One world champion Jody Schechter. In a year where he was racing against some impressive names, the likes of Mario Andretti, Nicky Lauda, Nelson Piquet, John Watson, Patrick Tombe, Gilles Villeneuve, Emerson Fittipaldi, Rennie Arnoux, James Hunt, Kiki Rosberg, Alan Jones, Ricardo Patrese and Joachim Mass. It was the South African man who took home the spoils. It's an honour to have him here with us today. Jody Schechter, a very warm welcome to the Motormouth podcast. Thank you. Thanks very much. Jody, mate, where, where are you uh, joining us from today? Because your background's not giving too much away. Exactly. From London. I got a little flat in London. So what was life like when you were growing up back in the 50s and 60s? What was, what was South Africa like? Set the scene for us. Oh, it's probably 10 or 20 years behind here. Lots of fights. Uh, lots of drinking. You could drive and dr drink at the same time there. Um, all sorts of things. I mean, there was very little restriction on anything as far as I remember. It's quite different. wild. Quite it's, wild. It's different era completely. So, so how did cars come onto your radar in the first place? Because w were, were those lack of restrictions, um, like, was that part of how you got into cars in the first place? No, in fact, the, the the Grand Prix in 1936, I think, somewhere around there, was in East London, South Africa. And my dad had a garage, and then uh, there was always racing around there. My uncle raced in 37, um, and they had a race in the middle of the year, which was a, a sort of regional or at least South African one, and then they had the Grand Prix at the end of the year where Moss drove and everything. I think what I was, was about 63. And I was 13 or something like that. And uh, so racing was all around. And I think it's fair to say you had one speed when you started, and that was just extremely fast. And in your na first national race, you were, you were black flagged for dangerous driving before you started to really hone your craft and com become competitive and start winning. Was that speed a reflection of your personality at the time? Were you just a bit of a bit, of a hothead, bit reckless, or was it just a case that you hadn't quite honed it yet? I've never thought of it like that, but probably the hothead thing is probably right. Um, yeah, it was wild. It was wild in those days. I, I don't really know. Actually, I remember going to a go-kart, and there, it was, I mean, go-karts weren't like they are today. And um, my brother was driving, and I was driving, and they said, oh, I'll, I'll, he'll never be any good. That's me, because he's sliding the car all over the place, and, and my brother was much more smooth. So I wasn't going to make it, but that was when we were very young. Um, did a little bit of go-karting. I was uh, last in my class in school. And um, I said to my parents, if I come in the top four, will you get me a go-kart? And they said, well, that's a safe bet. I uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, she just got in, just on the car. So, so what was, um, you say your brother drove and like other family members, what were, what were they like as drivers? Were you clearly quicker than them or, or, or was everyone quite competitive in the family? No, I mean, you, you didn't do enough racing there to compare whether you were or not. I was useless at school and loved to go to the workshop. So every holiday I went to the workshop and worked on my bike because you started racing bikes at, at that stage. When you were 16, you could get a, a 50cc uh, bike license. And of course, mine wasn't 50cc, it was a little bit more. And, uh, and then at 18, you get your driver's license. And uh, yeah, I just spent all my time in the workshop, which I love to do. So at what point did, it, did you decide to leave home and, and move across to Europe? When did that happen? 
Well, you know, I mean, the first car I bought myself, engine, gearbox, everything, modifications and everything. And then uh, Formula uh, Ford lent me a Formula Ford because I was doing quite well in uh, saloon cars, which was very big in South Africa at that time. And uh, uh, Ford lent me a car, a car and a, I won, was the first South African in that series, which was, like I said, which gave me a drive to Europe, three months in Europe. And uh, they lent me a, uh, a car and a trailer, and I had to do the rest. And we mentioned your potential at that, at that stage. Your, your hot-headedness, perhaps, was a reflection of the speed and the way you were driving. When you came across to Europe, you were doing Formula Ford, Formula 3. Do, do you think that temperament was a help or a hindrance at that point in your career? No, I think you take it further. I think I always slid the car. It was, I mean, my nickname was Sideways. Um, <laughs> and, and that's the way I drove. And, and I could drive around problems. It doesn't matter what the car was doing. And maybe I learned that running cars at the early days that weren't working too well and you had to work around them. So that was an advantage when you got into the race and you had a bad car. But in, in testing, whatever they did, I just drove around the problem. So you never really, I think I never really got the car in races as, as good as the other guys got because I had to drive around it. I just went for fastest lap, whatever it was. And so it was an advantage and a disadvantage. And also, as the tires got more to the edge, because in the olden days, the, 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 the more you slid, the hotter the tires got and the faster you were. I mean, at Brands Hatch, I think in the one race, I was a second and something ahead of everybody else. It was wet and cold, only because I was sliding the car and the, t- the temperatures mm. came up. So it was an advantage and a disadvantage. Yeah, it, it definitely slid around more in those days, looking at some of the footage of, over the last couple of days that, that we've been looking at. But do, do you think, I mean, we're going to come on to modern Formula One, but just while we're on it, when you, you talk about when you're doing your laps, you're given a, a crap piece of machinery, but you still manage to adapt and, and find a way to make it quick. Do, do you look at modern drivers and think, oh, come on, boys, like man up a little bit. You know, you, you're, you're, you've got these incredible machines and they fiddle around with front wings and rear wings and different settings and, and, and moan on the radio. Do, do you sort of think just, come on get on with it if you're that good make it quick no no i think i think it's probably the same i think there's some drivers that can drive a car when it's not quite right and there's some drivers that need the car to be right and they can drive you know fast and it's, i don't think that's from that point of view it's changed at all it's much smaller now because they know everything we didn't know anything yeah. you just thought well the softer the suspension was the more it was gripping and i went softer and softer and i think it probably was bad because the aerodynamics were changing and didn't didn't really know what we were doing. And and when you were coming up the ranks in the junior formulas, were you a bit of an anomaly in terms of you had that real understanding of how to build cars and how to actually work on the car from a, a mechanical point of view? Do you think that helped you out? Well, certainly at the at the at the very early stages because I was the one was working on the car. I mean, at the it was the Renault, the first car. I, you know, I built the engine, the gearbox, cut the pistons with a hacksaw, got glass down and filed them like this and then got um, uh, valves and put cutters on and drilled it like that so the, to the, to, so the pistons had what's the name. I mean, I went and put some big valves in. So I, I got it and I turned it around like this until they were just missing visually. And then I started it up and about 3,000 revs it dropped a valve. So I took it out and cut a little bit more until it got to 8,000 revs. And then I had the biggest valves you could ever get in there. <laughs> so it was just, uh, I wasn't doing very technical stuff, but 
Yeah, I, I That's so impressive. Like, where where did you learn all that? Was that from from your old man, or or just pick no, it up? No, no, no. It was just, <laughs> just read about things and looked at stuff. I mean, I'm telling too many stories, but I was in my bed once, and we had my uh, um, what do you call it? school books there. My dad said, "Oh, that's good." And he looked inside. It was how to modify two strokes. <laughs> so I wasn't cared about school. I was useless. All I worried about is you know going faster and doing engines and stuff like that. Are you still tinkering around with cars? I know you've got your you've still got a collection of F1 cars and, and single seaters. Are you still messing around with them, fiddling around? No, 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 no. I, I've thought about it, but you know, in those days it was easy because you're doing it all the time. When you're not doing it and you go and start working on a car. Um, it, it's tough, yeah. yeah. Now, um, we've had a number of um, former and current F1 drivers on the show, and we always ask them what it was like the first time they stepped into a, a Formula 1 car and put their foot down. And, and actually, most of the modern drivers say the most impressive feeling they have is the braking um, rather than the acceleration. Do you remember your first time in a Formula 1 car and that visceral feeling and the emotions that you felt? Well, it was the, the first I remember, and I'm not sure if I tested before that, was Watkins Glen. So uh, Lotus offered me a drive at the end of what my um, second year. Yeah. And uh, then McLaren said, we'll give you a drive. So I was driving at Watkins Glen. I always remember just going faster and it's still stuck to the road and you went quicker and quicker and quicker. And that I thought, well, wow, it's got a lot of grip. I mean, compared to what they've got today, it's just minute, you know. Um, but that was the difference between Formula 2 and Formula uh, Formula One, and, and and in terms of in in terms of different kind of tracks and circuits, how much experience did you have? Like, um, obviously coming over from South Africa and racing in Europe and, and Watkins Glen, had you raced a lot in the states? Had you raced a lot in Europe and a lot of different tracks by that stage in your career? No, I hadn't. I hadn't r- r- raced in South Africa or three tracks or something like that, and then came over and did Formula Ford here, and Formula Two, Formula uh, Three, then uh, Formula Two. And then Formula One. So I didn't, I didn't gr- driven anywhere, just Europe and, and South Africa. Now, we, we have to ask you about the, the big shunt that everyone remembers at Silverstone, um, Woodcock. Presumably, you remember that fairly clearly. I mean, you came to a, a halt in the track before it all really kicked off. W- how do you remember? How do you look back at that? Do you remember the feeling of sitting in the car thinking, oh, God, like, there's a lot of cars charging towards me. This is probably going to hurt. Just before we get into that, bear with me for two minutes. I must tell you about our new sponsors of the show, and it's one that means a great deal to us all on a very personal level here at the Motormouth Podcast. In 2021, Dana, the founder of Motus One, passed away suddenly and without warning whilst visiting family in the States. Dana was one of my very best friends. The legacy he left with his family and his business is incredible, and I'm hugely humbled and proud to have his booming business as part of this show. Sponsors are vital for our survival and make sure we continue to bring you interviews with the biggest names in racing. So if you or your company needs event transportation, look no further than the team at Motus One. They have you covered anywhere in the world, from a single chauffeur-driven sedan to a fleet of luxury SUVs, Teslas, or motor coaches. Find your transportation solution with Motus One. They've got offices worldwide, including the Middle East, Europe, and Africa, and will support your transportation needs regardless of location. Motus One is committed to world-class service at the very best rates to ensure your event goes off without a hitch. 
Contact them at motusone.com. We'll put all their social links in the podcast description. A massive, massive thanks to Dana, his wife, Claudia, his kids, the rest of the Motus One team. Thank you for having faith in our show and joining us for season 12. Right, back to it. On with the show. I, I was sliding like that and I thought if I let the brakes go, I, I would go. Then I hit the wall and came out. But when I looked up, the cars were just crashing before they hit me. So I put my head down like this. And then I, when I looked up again, there was some more coming. Put my head down again. I mean, it was, you didn't think about it really. You just try to get out of the way. And yeah, I was massively lucky. Yeah. Um, I always say the, the most, the thing, the most I achieved in racing was coming out alive. Yeah. Because, you know, there were one to two drivers killed every year. Now, talking of crashes, there's a, a pivotal moment that's been well documented in your career. Um, Jackie Stewart retired. You were going to line up alongside Francois Severe, but he was killed during practice for a race. You were one of the first on the scene. And it's been reported that that changed the way you viewed the sport. When you look back at that now with the years that have happened in between, do you still sort of earmark that as the point where you thought, right, I'm, I'm going to change tack here. This is going to change the way I race in the future. No, no, definitely not. Um, but it's the first time I'd seen somebody that was died or was dying or was dead. Um, and it sort of, I thought, well, everybody's carrying on like it's normal, you know, and, uh, but, but um, no, I don't think that. I think if anybody sort of slowed me down was probably Ken, uh, you know, shouting at me all the time. Well, because, I mean, Jackie was the first, one of the first kind of really high-profile drivers to really push the whole safety. Because like you said, there was an acceptance back then that, oh, well, this is just part of it because it always had been. Like, do, do you remember those kind of conversations at the time? And And I imagine there was probably some pushback towards Jackie for him trying to, trying to improve the sport, um, again, from a safety point of view, because it was unacceptably dangerous back then. Well, I think it was unacceptably, even through my own. But I did a lot to do with, uh, to try and make it safer. Now, I want to pick up on um, your experience with Ferrari. So um, Enzo Ferrari, a, a man that is very familiar to a lot of racing fans, but a bit of an enigma as well. What, what was he like? Well, he, was, he was very tough. Everybody was really scared of him. Um, he was very smart. He tried to put people against each other. Um, so I remember after the first race was it in, in uh, Brazil, and I came back and he asked me, um, you know, what was the car like? And I said, no, well, the, the, the Fords are quicker out the, you know, got quicker out the corner, out the, going up the straight, and they had more acceleration. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't translate to him. <laughs> the engine guy would have got fired, I think. And so and I said, but tell him. No, no, they wouldn't tell him. No. That's, so have you seen the movie Rush, Jody? Yeah, but I can't remember. It, I was, I was going to say, I was going to ask if that was like a, an accurate portrayal because th there's a scene in that where like Nicky Lauder's like giving feedback and saying it's a piece of shit and they're like, you can't say that because it's a Ferrari. Like, was it very much that? Because I, I think that's kind of held that, Ferrari back as well, that kind of attitude. No, yeah, you you really could not say anything negative against Ferrari, and you know at that time before when I came in, the the Italian press liked to put the fighting between the two drivers, and that was very common. And you know I just said, listen, you guys, we're internally we're not going to get hold of that, and we didn't we didn't worry about the external. Um, 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Papers and what they were saying and everything like that. It's funny, I, I look back, I've never had a bad word with any of my teammates. And I think what goes on these days, everybody's sort of, you know, I know you. that's your biggest competitor, but everybody seems to be fighting, which is a negative for everybody. Now, let's talk 1979, the year. Gilles Villeneuve is your teammate. You're racing in a Ferrari. You win the Formula One World Championship. The first South African, I think the only South African to do it since. Take us through the emotions that season and how it felt to realise that ambition. Well, it was, you know, Gilles won the first two races or beat me in the first two races. So... I had signed as number one, was in my contract. And so I was number two <laughs> at that stage. So, you know, you have to get down. I said, well, this is, I've got to, you know, I've got to lift my game and that, and that's what, that's what I did. And it was, the difference when you're going for a championship was the, the, ten, the tension was the same when you were at the track and not at the track. It was all, before it was like every two weeks you were racing, sort of went up and down. So it was stress. Like, like, you know, massive stress. Um, just trying to make sure that everything you did all the time was to go faster. Did you feel like you handled that pressure quite well um, it, 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 at that time, in that moment? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I don't think I've ever, I, I don't really, I, <laughs> I don't think I've ever felt that I did badly because of pressure. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think once in, in Monaco, my legs started jumping like this. <laughs> like, what's your name? But otherwise, it, it probably pushed me to, to do better. Because mm. I, I was going to ask, actually, obviously, 79 was your title winning season. But do you think that was your, your best season? Because obviously, there could be other seasons where you just had really bad luck and you actually felt you drove better or, or worse. Do you think that was your best season? Or is there, is there an underrated Jody Schechter season there? No, I, I think I could have and should have won the championship when I was the first year with Wolf. Um, and but it was, thinking back, I never ever thought of winning the championship, and I think that was probably the biggest problem, because you were just thinking you were a small team. I remember James Hunt saying, "Well, he, he's out of the way because we won the first race. He's out of the way. It's not going to make any difference because they didn't think I'd be competitive." Um, but so, so I think I was just trying to beat people and not try to win the championship because it, it, I, I could have very easily won the championship then. 
A very quick interruption to remind you to check out our sponsors, Motus One, the event transportation company. Motus One is the industry leader in complex transport management from hospitality, talent, production crews, VIPs, and artist transport. Motus One's team have got you covered. They've also launched their leading edge cloud-based event transportation management system called Motus Ride. Now you can manage your entire event transport program digitally. Make bookings, allocate rides, create approval processes, see reports, track costs, loads more. Head over to MotusOne.com and hear how they can support your event transportation needs. Back to the show. What was it like driving at Monaco? Because it, it's, it's an incredible racetrack, full of history. Some people love it now, some people don't. It's staying on the calendar, which I think is great. What was it like tearing around there in those cars back in the day? Was it absolutely terrifying? No, no, no. Uh, that, you know, that was a race track that I did the best out of any race track because I got, I won twice and I was second and third and stuff like that. So, no, I, I don't know. Maybe it's, you know, all of the hooligan stuff when I was back in East London. So I got there. But I mean, and qualifying was everything. You know, you, you had to, if you qualified well, you had a chance of winning. If you qualified well and got to the front, you really had won the race unless something happened. And, uh, both when I was with the Wolf, uh, the last lap I crashed going around the swimming pool. And with the Ferrari, because it was Jill was going, it was Jill and I, I was pole, he was pole, I was pole like this. And uh, so I was at the touching the outside guardrail as with the back wheel, as he slid at the back wheel. And he, he was still quicker than me. So then I started touching the inside guardrail with the right-hand uh, front tire. And then hitting, you know, it, you're just touching a little bit. The last lap, the front suspension went like that. So I suppose I got it timed absolutely to the, to, to the, you know, the next lap wouldn't have got around. You know. Certainly prepared to push uh, that. That's insane. What, what I would like to ask actually, Jody, is like, obviously being in this F1 kind of, especially Monaco, where it's all very fancy and there's loads of, like, there's loads of, like, rich and wealth and all that and, and obviously you're coming from pretty like humble beginnings how did you find that side of the sport all the glamour and all that because it, it, it was obviously it's still very ostentatious now but even like back in the day it was like Monaco was that kind of crown jewel event in, in, in F1 which was you know a very privileged kind of paddock to be I, I lived I lived in Monaco but listen I never ever got involved or worried about that sort of rubbish you know, if you wealthy or not wealthy or anything like that didn't didn't make any difference and it still doesn't make any difference to me you're either a nice guy you're not a nice guy are you right. are you are you not financially driven because you've been very successful post racing you you've started businesses you've had very successful businesses is that a driver for you is that is the finance something that is important to you or, or has been well yeah i mean it was but i think it was really uh, uh to feel secure i think more than anything and and to be challenged I, I never thought I'm going to make some more money. Although I remember sitting with Guy Edwards once and he said, the first one to get a hundred thousand, you know, and then it was the first one to get a million. Mm. And then, then America was, was very successful from, from, my, from my point of view. I started on the kitchen table and in 12 years, we were in 35 different countries. We had 95% of the world market. And that was, as big an achievement as racing to, in, to myself. Yeah. The last few years with 29, 60, $100 million sales. Amazing. Have you, is that company still with you or have you sold that business? 
No, we, we sold it right at the time uh, and went, went public two months after we sold it. Wow, amazing. Because you retired early, comparatively speaking. You retired at 30 years old. Do, do you ever wish you'd kept going? No, definitely not. You know, Renault offered me, say, whatever money you want, right? Uh, I think it was in Canada. And I said, no, no I've made up my mind. I'm, I'm going out. You know, one to two drivers were killed every year. I think that the real... Uh, what do you call it? The real specialness of Formula One had gone from me because I saw a lot of things where they didn't look at the driver's safety and stuff that was going on. And, and I suppose the magic sort of left and I thought, well, then I must do something else. And when you look at Formula One in this kind of current era where we are in 2022, like if, if you'd have grown up in this era, how do you think you would have... Um, not even just from where you would have competed, but do you think you would have... Because the sport's so different now to where, what it was back in, back in the yeah, 70s. I, right? I would have blown off everybody. <laughs> no, I'm, joking. <laughs> I'm joking. Actually, I don't think I'd be... You know, Good I, answer. When, 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 when qualifying, we had qualifying tyres at, at some stage. So you did one lap and then they were much faster and you couldn't... The second lap, they were just rubber, finished. And I wasn't really good at that because I like to feel the car and go up. And today it seems like it's the one lap more than that you have to go quick. And I probably wouldn't be that competitive under that situation. But you never know. You adapt to what you need to do. Yeah. Who is the greatest that you've ever shared a track with? Oh, good question. <laughs> oh, there's another question. Uh, I mean, you know, it was Nicky Lauda, was, was Emerson. I suppose those were the two guys that, Stood out at that at that at that time, yeah. And, so, and I have another just, question: which 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 driver, if you could race against any driver, who would you drive against? You know, and everybody was oh Fangio or whatever. So I looked up in the in the specs to see where the worst driver had the worst results ever, and I said I want to drive against him. <laughs> <laughs> and and they be your teammates, so you makes you look even better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of, of the um of of the current. Uh, grids in F1. Who would you say, which driver reminds you the most of you? I guess that's kind of in terms of how they drive, but also just maybe how they just carry themselves. Who's the modern day Jody Shetzer? I, I think, I think uh, uh, Lewis at the beginning, the big difference is I crashed and he didn't. Um, <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, maybe he found stuff, but, you know, I mean, he's obviously become much better than I ever was. Um, but he was very lethal at the beginning. I, I didn't like it because I don't think he had any respect for other drivers. I remember, was it when um, uh, Rosberg were going for the championship? I think it was the last race. And he pushed him over off the track. Um, and I thought, you know, just imagine if he had crashed that. He would have stopped the guy winning a championship. He wasn't involved in it. Um, if I wasn't going for the championship... I respected the other drivers and didn't really fight them as much as I would if uh, if it wasn't. Yeah. I let James, I let him through. I didn't stop him from going through at Watkins Glen um, when he was going for the championship. And I could have failed him back easily. Do you think, um, you know, you, you've gone on to have this career in business and now you've got the farm and, and, and that's become a very big thing um, that's grown organically over time um, and you've got plenty of factories there that, you, you know, you're doing a lot of business there. Do you think Formula One set you up at all for that kind of thing? Do you think Formula, what you've learned in F1 has helped from a business perspective? 
before that, the, the farm has been financially a disaster. <laughs> uh, we've made fantastic products, um, but but it's a disaster. Um, Formula One, it's funny. The, more, it, it it helps you in every way, but it, it's developing technology very fast and getting ready for an event. Whether you're a policeman, a racing driver, or going to war, those fundamentals are the same. And so when I got into uh, doing the um, what do you call it the, the the company in America, we were making simulators to train police that would go into a shooting and military that would go into war. So the two fundamentals were the same. I, I moved technology much faster than anybody else. Okay. And, um, and then I set them up so they could really l- learn to do what they did when they went into an event. I remember the one guy that was training on our system just lost it um, in LAPD because it put so much stress on them like it would have done in a shooting. And that's what the whole thing was about. Yeah. But it, it sounds like you've kind of not been, I guess some drivers post their career, um, we've kind of put their feet up and, and just chill, but it sounds like you, you very much haven't done that. And that's like, I mean, that's so interesting. Like what, when you think today, now, what in life kind of right now is, is the thing that gives you like the most excitement and enjoyment at the minute. So I've had, I, I always say I've had sort of four career, careers or four things that I'm proud of. One was racing. The next was America and the farm. Yes, I'm proud of it because it's awesome. And I won the world superstars. Uh, what's the name? As a race driver, I beat all the uh, other athletes. I mean, Moses was uh, his world championship. He, his own world championship. I think he broke eight times or something like that. So as a race driver, I was very proud of that. That's great. Now, listen, Jody, we won't keep you too much longer, but we do have a final three quickfire questions that we ask all of our guests, and these are brought to us by our sponsors over at Motus One. Um, Tom, why don't you kick off with the first one? Sure. So right now, today, what's got you most excited um, in life, Jody? Which I've kind of asked that already, but... Yeah, well, so my again. next career is going to be on the beach, and that's what I'm trying to do. Nice. Sounds like a good, good idea to me. How much of your success do you put down to luck and right place, right time, and how much is down to other things like sheer hard work? Well, I always say the secret to success is hard work. And uh, some people do it without hard work. I always worked. I always felt I could work harder than anybody else. Um, but are you lucky? Yeah, of course you're lucky uh, all the time. Um, and but you hopefully you make your own luck. Final question, Jody. Uh, what are you scared of? What am I scared of? I used to I used to hate flying. It was worse than going. You know, I was more scared of flying in an aeroplane than. But I don't worry anymore. What am I most scared of? Not a lot, especially after a couple of drinks. What's your drink so, of choice? Uh, it used to be whiskey. Now I'm drinking red wine. Yeah, I like I have red. A ba- I have a barrel of whiskey. Wow! Uh, at, at, at my place, so it's and I put a little tap on it. So uh, straight down the throat, no glass, just sit under the tap. Well, I've got a video where I went underneath and turned the tap on. <laughs> <laughs> Are any of your uh, business ventures related to kind of drink at all? Because quite a few of the current drivers, like. Bottas has a gin brand. Ricardo's done wine as well. So I think that's quite a popular thing Yano for drivers Chile, to do. He's done his wine, well, yeah. we, we made sparkling wine. We don't anymore, but we still got. And we were nominated for the Queen's Jubilee sparkling wine. Wow. So it was, a, it was a very, very good product 
financially it didn't work. Um, you know, you just you, in the in the food business or that you just it's got to be volume. Yeah. So you can make the best product, you can charge what you like, but the only way you make money in food is volume. Well, listen, Jody. it's been fascinating talking to you. Um, thank you so much for your time. Uh, best of luck with the farm and all your other business endeavours. Um, best of luck getting through that barrel of whiskey and, and hopefully we'll see you on the farm soon. Thanks very much. Appreciate it, you guys. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore, Instagram at Motormouth underscore official, and Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can also download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own social profile to interact with other fans, and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. We're also proud to be supporting the Brain Tumor Charity too, so make sure you check the links in the podcast description to find out how you can help cure brain tumors quicker. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review. And until next time, you've been listening to the Motormouth Podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.